0: Alright, well good morning, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback in front of a seat around you. Uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 3. Um, if you are new with us, we're in the middle of a series where we are preaching through the book of Acts. Um, and so, uh, we'll just go uh, line by line through a book here at FCQ. And so we're in the middle of the book of Acts. We've taken a couple of weeks off, um, so we'll recap where we've been so far in the book of Acts. Um, As we get started here this morning. I appreciate your prayers um, for my dental problems. Still recovering from the root canals. Uh, Got over it just in time for allergy season. Uh, So we're all, I think, in that that boat right now. Trying to get through uh, the pollen that is coming upon us. Um, But happy to be here with you and happy to um, worship with you and and open up the scriptures with you. One announcement as we get started next week. Uh, I will not be here, I'll be up in Dallas uh, in my place, Adam McIntyre will be here um, with his bride uh, Kathleen and Adam will be preaching for us some of you remember Adam, who's our youth pastor a few years back, Uh, so he'll be here preaching, um, so I will leave but I will send a gift um, and so Adam will be here with you, uh, so you will enjoy that. Uh, Acts chapter 3 is where we are this morning, our sermon is titled "Vita Nova, uh, which is Latin for new life, Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of I'm sure you have of of being in um, the heat for a long, extended period of time uh, and really exerting yourself and not having any water to drink um, and kind of the the build-up and anticipation you have for that first drink of cold water. Um, I myself am not a big fan of water. Uh, I I have a hard time understanding people who enjoy water, who like water, who would drink water from choice. Um, If I'm drinking water, it's either because I've been doing um, some some strenuous exercise, right? Or I've been in the heat or because I've been talking for a long time and I want to make sure that my voice doesn't die later on in the day. So I'll drink water on Sunday mornings. You won't find me drinking water a lot of other times. Um, but often I think that thirst, this idea of thirst or of, of longing for that drink of cold water, that, that refreshment, I think it's a good analogy for you and I to, to look at, at life, um, through, um, sometimes, um, things come our way for me in the last few weeks. It's been these these teeth problems and and now um, some other sicknesses um, that that kind of create this thirst inside of you. Um, It kind of feels like you've been running and you've been sweating um, and, and things have not been going your way and you're just longing for refreshment. I mean, you're longing for that cold drink of water to cool you down and to relax and to breathe in. And to recognize that everything's alright, that everything's, all right, that, that everything's in, in God's hands. I don't know if, if that's where you are this morning or if you can um, recognize that kind of place in life. Um, but this morning we're going to be looking at the new life that Jesus brings. That's just part of who He is. That's part of what He's doing. That's His aim. That's His purpose. He came to bring new life. And then also how He accomplishes that new life through His church, through His people. So I wanted to start off this today, before we jump into Acts, by reading you a poem. Um, the poem is by a guy named Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, and it's called As Kingfisher's Catch Fire. Um, so we'll read it um, this morning and, and then, I think, try to use um, the words of this poem um, to, to interpret this text uh, in front of us in Acts chapter 3. One of my favorite poems, again, um, by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Here it goes. It's up on the screen behind me. As Kingfisher's Catch Fire... Dragonflies draw flame, as tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring, like each tucked string tells each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, selfs goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came, I say more. The just man justices, keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eyes what in God's eyes he is, Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the feature of men's faces. There's these two distinct parts of this poem here that have captured my imagination. The first one has this kind of general idea of, that, that what is inside of an object, whether it's a small bird like a kingfisher or a, um, like a guitar string or a bell, um, it has this way of expressing itself through action, of communicating its identity and its purpose um, through the actions that it has. So think of like a guitar string. You have a guitar string. It exists there. And then when it's hit, when it's strung, it sends out noise. And says, "This is why I came." Same with with people, right? We act out who we are inside, and it's this way of communicating our identity and our purpose. This is why I came, and we'll see in Acts chapter three once again that the reason Jesus came, the reason the Son was sent by the Father, was to bring. Life to bring life in the full, to bring rescue and redemption. And then in the second half of this poem, it switches and it talks about um, more people oriented action. So the just man, the person who's just on the inside, justices, does just things. And the person who is full of grace has graceful actions. And then notice this Christ. I love this line. Christ is playing in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and eyes, not his. Here's the idea, again, that we'll see in Acts chapter 3, that Christ in the world today is working through you and I. He's working through the church. We are his hands and his feet. He, in a sense, is playing, working, bringing that new life, which is why he came through you and I. And we'll see that work itself out here in the early church in Acts chapter 3. So with this kind of language and metaphor in mind, let's look at Acts chapter 3 together. One of the things I love about um, Luke uh, as an author is that he can tell a story um, like almost nobody else can. And so I want to point out some of the things that we'll find in this story here. Um, If you'll look in Acts chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 42, just just to get some context since we've been out of Acts for a while. You'll remember at the beginning of Acts, the resurrected Christ has appeared to his disciples. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God, about God taking back control of the world. He then ascends into heaven, where he reigns as Lord and King. He sends the Spirit into his followers. They start speaking in tongues. Peter gets a sermon. 3,000 people are saved. And then we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the hundred and twenty, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we get this picture of the early church after Peter's first sermon. There's this huge church growth. 3,000 people are added to their number that day. And then they're together. And they're learning together. They're being taught by the apostles. They're praying together. They're taking communion together. They're worshiping together. Now hone in on verse 43 here. Part of the life of the early church... Was that all was coming upon every soul? Verse 43, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What we have in chapter 3 through chapter 4 is an example of one of these signs and wonders that was being done through the apostles that was causing this awe to come among the people. So in chapter 3, he picks up Peter and John, verse 1, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, it would have been about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms or money of those entering the temple. So he's a beggar. He, he's sitting at the gate, begging people as they come into the temple for some money. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Best day ever for this guy, right? For the lame guy from birth. Um, He is asking for money. Um, I've never begged, but I would imagine if you get the response, well, I don't have any money, in your mind you're thinking, okay, great. I'm going to get like a button or some lint or something like that. So Peter's like, look, we don't have any money. And the guy is just like... All right, this is great. He goes, but what I do have is get up and walk. And so this guy's, I mean, whole world is just shattered here. Um, there's this miracle that happens. He gets up and walks. You'll notice, like in verse 7, language like feet and ankles were made strong. These are technical medical terms um, in the Greek. Also notice how many times Luke mentions he's walking, he's walking, he's walking. You'll remember the author of Acts of Luke is a doctor. So he's very interested in this medical aspect of what's happening here. This guy was lame. He was paralyzed. He could not walk. And now he was walking. Something physically happened to his legs that allowed him to walk. Now, this story is beautifully written. I want to point out two things to you. The first is this new life that this man who was lame from birth receives. Notice the contrast that Luke paints here at the very beginning of the story. You've got the beautiful gate. This would have been a gate made out of bronze, possibly gold. It would have been so um, noteworthy and artistic to the people of Jerusalem that they named it the beautiful gate. But notice the contrast. Sitting at the beautiful gate is a man not so beautiful. A man who's been lame from birth. Who Probably, if we were being honest, had trouble showering and, or bathing himself. Um, maybe had trouble feeding himself, things like that. Probably didn't look the nicest. Probably didn't smell the nicest. Perhaps not act the nicest, being lame from birth you got this kind of contrast, this black and white, the beautiful gates and the man lame from birth. Notice what happens to this man, this life that he receives. If he's been lame from birth, this means a few things. This means he's never been inside the temple. Notice he's sitting outside of the temple. According to Mosaic law to the Jewish tradition, if you were um, paralyzed or had this kind of sickness from birth, you were unclean. So you weren't allowed to go into the community of the believers. You were never allowed to go into the temple and worship. Notice what happens. What's the first thing he does after he's healed is he goes into the temple, praising God, celebrating. So here's a man, if we're looking at him, sitting up against the beautiful gate who has been physically disabled his entire life. So something has gone wrong with his body physically. Here's a man who's been socially outcast his entire life, who's never been included in the group, who's never been able to worship and live life with his brothers and his sisters and his neighbors, the Israelites. And here's a man who is spiritually separated from God, was never allowed to enter into the temple, probably had hardness of heart over years and years of wondering why this had happened to him. In fact, most of the people at this time would have attributed it to his sin or his parents' sin. That's why they would have given the answer, he was paralyzed. So this guy was physically, socially, and spiritually separated. When, when um, the, the people of the scriptures, people of the book, both the Jewish people and the Christians, they look back and they ask, what's gone wrong with the world? They look at Genesis 3 and see that when sin enters into the world... Death and corruption kind of starts to seep into every aspect of life. So physically, bodies start to decay. Things start to corrupt. Death enters into the world. This was the main punishment for sin. You will die. And every one of us will die. And socially... Death and corruption creeps into the world and relationships break down, families break apart, violence enters into the world, murder and abuse and poverty, and then spiritually we're separated from God and watch what happens as this breath of new life enters into this man and it's all reversed. Physically, he can walk. Luke's very intentional about letting us in on this miracle that's happening. His feet and his ankles are made new and he can stand up and walk where he once could not. Notice the human aspect here. Luke goes out of his way, it seems, in verse 4 and 5. He says, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. So Peter and John makes eye contact. They make eye contact with the man, and then they demand eye contact back. I think it's easy. You and I probably have experienced this, right? You pull up next to a red light. There's a guy asking for money. What do you do? You avert your eyes, and you, you take your eye contact away. Peter and John, though, are very intentional about making eye contact. And Luke goes out of his way to make sure you understand they looked at him. They saw him. And then they demand eye contact back. And the man looks back again. He fixes his attention on them. He's socially... The social estrangement that he's had is now being reconciled. He's being brought back into a community of people. And then he goes into the temple and he worships and he praises God. He leaps. I would imagine if you and I had been paralyzed... Since birth, we do a little skipping, right? Mm-hmm. After we got healed, um, we test out our, our ankles and our feet a little bit. Um, now, so, so watch again, this guy, he's sitting at the, the beautiful gates, in a not so beautiful situation. But God, through the disciples, breathes this new life into him. He breathes this new life into him. Um, now, what's actually happening here is the early church is simply continuing Jesus' ministry. If you remember from the, the Gospels, Jesus is always doing stuff like this. He's always healing people. He's always coming and bringing this new life to situations that are dark um, and desperate. Um, and so a young man or young girl who's died, he raises them to life. People have been sick their entire life. He heals them. And what's happening is the early church is continuing this ministry. This is why Jesus came to bring life, to bring the kingdom of God. And what's happening here as Jesus is in heaven and the disciples are living life as the church is they're continuing this ministry. Christ is continuing to play through their limbs and through their eyes as they see and as they heal and as they take part in the story of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. What's interesting is if you look in verse 8, um, you'll see this verb leaping. And leaping up he stood and began to walk and into the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, this is a very, very rare Greek word, this verb to leap. Um, it, it's not found in a lot of places. Um, and, and when we ask ourselves, why did Luke use this verb. There are other verbs that he could have and probably would have used for this idea to leap. Why did he use this one? Why did he use this rare Greek word? Um, We get our answer if we look in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah uses the same word, and and there's really only two of the places we really see them in prominence. Um, And in fact, what's happening here in this text is a fulfillment of what we find in Isaiah. So flip with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. This will be to your left a little bit. What Luke is doing here is he's mirroring, he's echoing. He wants you to go look at Isaiah 35 and realize what's happening as this lame man is healed. So Isaiah 35, we'll pick up in verse 1. This is a poem, a text about the kingdom of God arriving, about the Messiah, the Christ, the King. Jesus coming onto earth and fixing what has gone wrong. I mean, this is what the kingdom's all about, right? God is setting up his reign and saying, these things are not allowed. This is not what I intended for my good creation. And so we have here in Isaiah 35, the wilderness, verse one, and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. A place with no water, no life, where things have gone wrong, will be happy They will blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, the kingdom. He will come back and set up his reign. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Why for waters break forth into the wilderness. And streams in the desert. Into a place where there was no life. Life will now flow. Water will now burst in and flood. And when that happens. Isaiah prophesied. Lame men will leap like deer. And as Luke tells the story of Peter healing the lame man from birth, he wants us to be clear. So he uses the same words. He wants us to be clear that this is what's happening. The kingdom has come. New life water is bursting onto a canvas of desert. And people who are lame are leaping with joy and celebration and victory. Flip back to Acts chapter 3. The early church is continuing the ministry of Jesus. Notice how Peter heals this man. In verse six, he says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He heals him in the name of Jesus. Um, Name is a shorthand phrase for authority and power. It's not this kind of magical formula. Or as if just by saying the name, um, you were imported powers to do whatever you'd want. Um, But it's invoking the ministry, the authority, the power of Jesus. What he has done, why he came to bring new life, to bring the kingdom. Notice, um, Peter actually seems to be modeling Jesus here. In Luke chapter 8, if you were to go read it, Luke 8, 54, (laughs) Jesus has a miracle much like this one. And Peter and James and John were there to watch it. The inner three disciples. They get to go watch it. The other nine stay outside. And what happens, Jesus says, rise up and walk To a person who's paralyzed. And then he gives his hand and picks them up. Notice here, Peter is imitating his Lord. He's saying, I've seen this happen before. He says, get up. And he holds out his hand and picks them up. Paul will do things similar to this. The big difference between Peter and Paul and Jesus, between their miracles, is Jesus goes... Get up. Peter and Paul go in the name of Jesus. Get up. Do you see what's happening? It's his authority. It's his power. It's his mission. It's his kingdom that's being set up on earth as it is in heaven. And so this new life is breaking through. This man at the beautiful gate who was not so beautiful is now made beautiful. And the breath and beauty and the power and life of God flow through Peter onto this man. In an instant, change his, his world, change his life. Now, look at verse 11. Um, and we'll see Peter starts his second sermon here. In verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Notice, Peter doesn't seem intent on giving a sermon, but in a sense he's forced to. The crowd needs an explanation for why this happened. What just happened to them? This is the same pattern as happened in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost. The spirit comes down. The believers are filled with tongues. They're speaking in tongues. The crowds are astonished. And then Peter explains what has happened to them. I think this is a good model for you and I as the church. As we live out this life. This new life of the kingdom. We should be so formed by the way that we live life. The way that we interact with um, people around us that it would require an explanation. They would come and say, how could you live like that? How could those type of things happen? In fact, Christian history, if we look at our tradition, is full of these type of events. So the plague comes in Europe and everyone leaves the city except for the Christians. They stay to take care of the sick. That's a death sentence. Why would someone agree to do that? Well, if death is not the end for them. They had faith in the resurrected one who had promised them life eternal. And so Christians, they, they live lives that can only make sense in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done and what he's accomplished on their behalf. And then it demands an explanation. So Peter gets to explain what's just happened. Verse 12, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety, we have made him walk? He says, look, this wasn't us. This, this was not me. I'm not some superhuman, okay? But let me explain to you what happened here. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. If you were with us last week, right? Notice what Peter just did. He named God. He wasn't content with just saying God, this general three-letter word. He said the God of Israel, the God who made these promises in the past, the God who led Israel out of Egypt, This same God has now acted powerfully. How? By glorifying his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. What what an interesting phrase there. You killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter gives the crowds an explanation. He says, it's not through my power. It's not through my moral strength. I'm not some superhuman. Instead, this has happened on behalf of the one who died and raised. The one who has now accomplished the great victory of God, bringing rescue and redemption and new life Notice, um, for time's sake, just this title in verse 15, he calls Jesus the author of life. The Greek word here um, for author um, is um, probably implying and and meant to be read as the champion or the pioneer or the one who brings life, the author, the origin, the source of life. And life here is probably not creation, which would be true to say about Jesus. He was the creator of all things, but probably this new life. He's bringing new life. He was the one as the king. He was the one coming to set up the kingdom of God. Who would bring in God's rescue. His redemption. His salvation. Who would bring in the new life. And Peter says, but you killed him. But God raised him up. And what happened just now when this layman was healed. Is that faith in his name. That understanding the gospel. That he has died and risen again for us. That is what has made this man healed. To go back to our poem, King Fisher, he says, this is why he came, to bring new life. And when you see this new life happening, it should be a sign to you that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the one setting up God's kingdom, that salvation is found through him. For this is why he came. He's spelling it out. He's speaking it. Miracles in, in the scriptures are, are thought of as signs. They're thought of as things that point us toward a deeper reality, that communicate a truth to us. Um, and so John does this a lot. We see signs, for instance, in, in John, John's gospel. The first sign or miracle Jesus performs is um, turning water into wine at Cana at the wedding. Interesting first miracle of choice for Jesus. Um, interesting as well to think of attitudes perhaps that exist in the church about life and fun um, and and perhaps alcohol and that this is Jesus' big moment right? This is his coming out party um, as they run out of wine at the wedding and it's Jesus, again our our Lord, who's like, whoa, 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 hold on let's get some more wine let's get some more wine here. His first miracle the sign, what's it pointing towards? It's pointing toward this new life he's bringing pointing toward the celebration that's being inaugurated when he comes (laughs) The happiness and joy that fills people's hearts. And then Jesus in Luke 11, if you have time this week, you go read it. In Luke 11, Jesus says, as I cast out demons, as you see me cast out demons, you should understand that the kingdom of God is here. He says, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a sign. It's a sign that God is returning to creation. That water is flowing onto a desert land. That what has gone wrong with creation is now being fixed and reversed. The demons are being cast out. The deaf are hearing. The blind are seeing. The lame are walking. This is why he came to bring life. Look in verse 17. And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and from those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wickedness. Okay, so Peter continues to explain what's happened and he gives them a call to action. He says, if you recognize seeing this lame man healed, that the kingdom is here and it's continuing to come among us. That God's a new life is continuing to, to do powerful things in the world. Then here's what you need to do. He says, turn away from your sins. Repent. Place faith in Jesus in his name. Pledge your allegiance to him. Allow him to define who you are. And then notice what he says will come after that. I want you to, for just a second, hone in on verse 21. I think verse 21 is the key to what's happening here, okay? He says, Jesus is in heaven. Heaven must receive him until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke. If you're an underliner or a highlighter or a circler, I might circle or or underline those words. For restoring all the things about which God spoke. The great Jewish hope which then would become the great Christian hope, was that at a certain point in history, God would finally and fully step into his creation and say, enough. Enough with the things that have gone wrong in my creation. Enough with the things that distort and corrupt and destroy my creation. Enough with the things which I do not want here. And he would make things new. This is what we have in Revelation. Revelation. That when Jesus comes back, when when, um, the Christ is sent back to us, in verse 20, all things will be restored. Heaven and earth will be new. So here's what that would look like. Um, Here's the hope. There are lots of things in our world right now that God is not okay with. That he will one day, according to the promises of scripture, step in and say, done, no more. This is no longer allowed in my world. Certain things like sickness cancer things like that um war violence oppression poverty death if if you were to go read in, in revelation when he sits down after making all things new he says behold i've made all things new and he lists out things that are no longer in his creation there's no pain there's no death there's no mourning there's no tears those things are done away with. In fact, um, the prophets would say... I mean, if you were to turn on the news, you'll, you'll see things about nuclear war and things about um, global conflict and all those type of things. The prophets would say, one day is coming, this day, one day is coming when God makes everything right again where we'll take our nuclear weapons and we'll disarm them. All of us. When we take our swords and we'll beat them into farming tools because we won't need them anymore. And we'll take our guns we'll turn them into something else there'll be no use for them and a day is coming where you and i will not know will not remember according to the scriptures what it sounds like to hear someone grieve i don't know if you ever heard that sound the sound someone makes when they, they cry a, a cry of grief upon someone's death god says that's not that was not intended for my creation it's it's going to be gotten rid of it's out of here And so there's this great hope that one day God will come back fully and finally and restore all things, make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. And and, and if you notice in verse 20, what Peter says here is very interesting. He says that you and I don't have to wait until that day to experience this restoration. Notice what he says, if you repent If you turn from your sins, first they'll be blotted out. The ideas of a, like a a chalkboard and you erase it. So all the accusations against you, all the shame and the guilt that have built up in your life as you have done wrong things will be taken away. Will be wiped off the slate. And then in verse 20 times of refreshing may come upon you that you and I now in the present can get a taste of that last day. That you and I now in the present get a down payment of what it will be like when God restores all things. To go back to our thirsting and water image. The Isaiah 35 text says, there's this desert, which is our world broken and in sin fallen. And one day water will pour forth, life will come into it. And he says, Peter's saying right here, we don't have to wait until water floods the entire earth. We can drink right now. We can be filled right now. We can have refreshment right now. The future, God's future, is available in the present. I mean, this is how the the Christians spoke about Jesus. They had this belief that at the end of time, when God restored all things, he would raise his people from the dead. And they would live for forever. They would be resurrected. Now, this happened to one person in the middle of history. To Jesus, They said he was resurrected. They still believe that all of God's people will be resurrected on the last day. But it just so happened that Jesus was resurrected by himself in the middle of history. And they said this, God's future has come into the present. And this is what Peter's saying here. This is what's happened to the lame man from birth. God's future, where He restores all things, where He gets rid of the physical disabilities, He gets rid of the social outcastness, He gets rid of the spiritual separation. That has come in on the present, and a new life burst into this man. He's been healed. It's a sign for you to know that the kingdom is upon us, the kingdom is near us. This is why He came, is to bring life, to bring rescue, redemption, restoration, and it's available now to those who would turn, to those who would find their faith in him and who would turn away from their wickedness. So we'll, we'll wrap up today and I'll, I'll leave you with two things. The, the first is this. The, the first is this idea that, that this is why Jesus has come. This is why He lived and he preached and he gathered a church. And this is why he died and this is why he resurrected. It wasn't to just give us a few moral commands. I mean, it wasn't just to make us better people. And it wasn't just to give us this vague, journal sense of hope. That one day, maybe, everything will turn out alright. If we really just hope enough. If we really just pray enough. If we really just hold on by our, our... Our grips enough. One day maybe everything will be okay. He came to accomplish something. He came to do something. And after his resurrection, he said, I've done it. New life is here. And the, the early church experienced that new life. They found their very souls, their very beings refreshed. They found joy. They found that they were leaping like a deer. Celebrating and singing. Living life together. And so the, the call continues to go out to you and I, for you and I to find in the present God's future. No matter where we are in life, whether it's, it's, a, it's a place filled with mistakes and guilt and shame from the past, and we need to grab onto this promise that turning to Jesus results in the blotting out of our sins. Or whether we're in a place like, like I described at the beginning, where we're just thirsty. I mean, we're thirsty in the depths of our soul. We're not satisfied. We haven't found what it is that will fill us. And the promise of the kingdom, the promise of the gospel is that right now, by turning to him, you can have refreshment in your soul. You can experience this life. This is why he came. And here's the second thing I'd like to leave us with. As the church, as we're going through the book of Acts, we're trying to see what it means to be the church. What it means for you and I to to be, call his people. Notice how Jesus' new life is coming into the world after he ascends into heaven. It's through Peter and John and James and the disciples and the 120 and the 3,000. This is why we would call ourselves the hands and feet of Christ, because now he's working through us. The church is his conduit of power and grace. And so when we feed the poor, his new life is bursting into the present. When we serve the lowly, his new life is bursting in. And when we forgive and when we love and when we worship, the kingdom is upon us. We're bringing his life, his good news to the world around us. We might finish and and take another look at this poem. As Kingfishers catch fire. He says, As Kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame, That's tumbled over rim and roundy wells stone's ring, like each tucked string tells each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors. Each one dwells self's goes itself myself. It speaks and spells crying. What I do is me for that. I came. I say more the just man. Justices keeps grace that keeps all his goings. Grace acts in God's eye. What in God's eye he is Christ for Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. My prayer this morning is that we would see that this is why he came, that we would see that he came to bring new life, to bring redemption, to bring rescue, that that's available to us, and that also we'd see that we are now his way of working in the world. We're now the limbs and the eyes and the faces that he works through. And I pray that you and I, as we go to our workplaces, as we go to our schools, as we exist in our homes and our families, we'd be one of these 10,000 places that Christ plays. And that FC Cubed, as a community, as a a corporate group in Sugarland, would be a place where Christ works, where Christ brings life, where Christ witnesses to the realities of who God is and what he's done. And by his grace, we will do so. Would you pray with me? Father, we we thank you for our time this morning. Um, We thank you for the scriptures that you have given us. Uh, We ask that um, we would find life in you, much like the the lame man found life that day sitting at the beautiful gate. Um, That at a time of thirst and a time of need, we would find your beauty and your grace and your provision. And then we pray, Father, that just like Peter and John, just like the early church, we would be the means, the hands and the feet by which you move, that we would not shrink back from our role in bringing and enacting and inaugurating and witnessing to your kingdom. And today, Fathers, we hear about death and we hear about sickness and we hear about the things that continue to plague your good creation. We would Look into the future with faith and with hope, with a firm conviction that one day you will complete your kingdom. That one day all things will be restored. And to that end we sing, to that end we worship, to that end we work, to that end we play, to that end we laugh, to that end we are. We love you. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. All God's people said, Amen.